Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Not to us, not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name be glory forever and ever because of your love and your faithfulness. God, I can't begin to understand where all of us are in this moment, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, but you know. So we, as your people, come before you and ask that you would move and have your way with us, that you would take your words and place them exactly where they need to be placed as you so lovingly and wisely do. And we ask that this would happen not to give ourselves glory, but that all glory and honor would go to you, O oh God, because you are worthy of such glory and honor. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was in the United States Air Force, as my enlistment was ending, one of the things that people always said is, hey, before you get out, make sure you go get your wisdom teeth taken out. Because it's paid for then, and when you get out, you're going to have to pay for that. So make sure, before you get out, you set the appointment and go get your wisdom teeth taken out. It was like the mantra that everyone kept saying is, you're getting closer to your time getting out. And so I was not excited about such an endeavor, and so I would procrastinate and put it off. And, and finally, the last day, I had an appointment to get my wisdom teeth taken out. So I, uh, after a six-year enlistment, I completed my work duty that day, I went down and I'm walking into the spot where the dental office is and I open the door and it's all dark. And I thought, this is kind of weird. And so I said, hello. And, and someone said, is that Daroshi? And I said, yes. He said, come on back. And so I walked down this long, dark, cold hallway and I saw this room with a light on. I go in there and there's one guy there with all the tools set out, the chair. He said, you're here for your wisdom teeth, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well, take a seat. So I sat in the dentist chair, and they put the paper towel wax thing around me and clipped it, and, and then he, and I'm not kidding you, took a book and went, all right, wisdom teeth, right? And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Some of you veterans in here know what I'm talking about, right? You're, it's, yeah, see, I can get an amen. So I was in the air. If I just started and came out of basic training, I would have let that happen. Because anybody with a rank, you just let them do whatever they're going to do. But six years in, I knew better. So I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are, have you done this before? I said, nope, this is my first time. I go, and it's just us, and you're going to put me out? Yep. No, 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 no. So I took the thing off. I said, we are not doing this. I will pay whatever I have to pay to get my wisdom teeth out. We are not doing this. Certain things you don't want done by the book, right? You want something that is just automatic out of the hands of the oral surgeon. You want it just to flow out of what they normally know what they're doing. You don't want them to rely on the book. The Christian life is not like that. With the Christian life, we live by the book. And we, because our natural tendencies, the things that come to our mind, the, the natural experience we have of how we want to live our life, usually the first thoughts that come into our mind of how to react to a situation are not the best. 
God has given us his book to guide us in all things in life. The ordinary, the unordinary, the good, the bad. He's given us his word for us to live by. And what we're going to see this morning is Paul's going to live out or list out specifically in detailed form, simply how we are supposed to live by the book. And he does it in a way that shows us if we do that, we find a life of blessing, a life of joy, and a life of peace. We've been in a series going through the book of Romans called Experiencing the Gospel Together. And that's what we've been praying for this whole series, that we as a church would experience the gospel of Jesus Christ together as a group of people coming together to worship God. We want to experience that, and, and so part of what we're doing today is we've laid some great theological groundwork. As we've gone through some of the amazing passages of Romans, now we come to a place where Paul instructs us to live by the book in gospel love. And so I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open it up to Romans chapter 12. I'll be using the NIV, and if you are using the Worship Center Bible, I'm on page 920. Today, living by the book empowers us to love the way God wants us to love. I'm calling it gospel love. There are so many different definitions of love out there. If you ask somebody, what does it mean to love, you're going to get a chorus of different thoughts if you ask more than one person. When we think about loving others, sometimes we think about just being nice to people. And that might be part of it, but gospel love is what we're going to see is so much more involved than that. Here, Paul spells out clearly what gospel love is, and he does it very plainly, very simply, and by the book. So the first thing we're going to notice is gospel love is commanded. Gospel love is commanded. Look at verse 9 of Romans chapter 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. There are three commands, commands, that Paul gives in this text. Be sincere, hate, cling. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. This is his definition of gospel love. All three of these commands tell us what living a life of godly, real, authentic love is truly about. Our first love, this gospel love, it says at first it must be sincere. It must be real. We are not to be kind, polite, helpful on the outside, but harboring less than loving thoughts on the inside. We're not to be fake people as we interact with others. We are to be authentic, sincere, the context that Paul's writing here is a church where there's lots of disunity, where there's lots of backbiting, where there's lots of unloving taking place. And he now comes to this place where he wants to give a different way of living, the way of love. Since the context here is a church, it's very important for us to realize that because as a church, it's easy to become Christian nice where we have a veneer 
of outward kindness, but on the inside, there's backbiting, prejudice, gossip, and unkind ways. In this environment, there's an absence of lovingly telling the truth to one another, which doesn't mean we're mean and we slam people with the truth. And it doesn't mean that we just are silent and avoid any difficult conversation. I'm often blown away by when Christians offend one another and the default is I'm just never going to talk to that person ever again. This passage means that we are truly kind, polite, and nice, and when offense has taken place, we ask some questions. We pray, we ask God how we should deal with this, and we carry out what God tells us to do with wisdom and kindness and Christ-likeness. We live out authentic love. So love must be sincere. Second, we are told to hate what is evil. I love that this original writing means this, to be horrified by the things that God declares as evil. Be horrified by them. So many times we like take evil things and just work them into our Christian life. We just kind of adopt it. This is my sin. This is my, and, and we just kind of accommodate or allow Paul is saying here, be horrified by the evils. Be horrified by what God has declared as evil. Thirdly, it says we must cling to what is good. And literally that means glue ourselves inseparably to the good things of God. I love it. Now notice that all three of these are commanded. This is true gospel love, and it is commanded that we are to be sincere. It is commanded that we are to hate what is evil, and it is commanded that we are to cling to what is good. Why are they commanded, and why are they so important? Because when we talk about love, emotional love is a wonderful thing. But just to be honest, sometimes emotional love can cause us to drift it's wonderful, but if you love somebody affectionately, whether that would be a close friend, or if you think in the context of the church here, a brother and sister in Christ, or even if you think of somebody loving one another romantically, that emotional feeling is great, but it can often distort what is right and wrong. The emotion of love has a tendency to cover up the truth sometimes. So we need the full package. And Paul's exhorting us to the full package of, yes, the emotional love, but also the sincere love. We need to anchor our hearts in love that is sincere. Otherwise, there's distortion. And this distortion can be seen in our culture all around us. Just look at the songs that have marked this culture. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. We are secret lovers. We are both in love with someone else, but what we feel is oh so real. It can't be wrong if it feels so right. 
Yes, it can. Sometimes emotional love can create this emotional high that covers up what God declares as good and what God declares as best. And when this happens, it's like there's this niceness that replaces truth. Emotional love is a wonderful gift from God, but it must be anchored in what Paul is talking about here, a sincere love. This can happen in churches all the time. Church is supposed to be nice. And yes, that's true. But it also means at church that we're supposed to call out what is true. If it means, if nice means that we are never gently, wisely, lovingly calling out one another to live in a godly way, then we don't reflect the love of God because love is sincere. A lack of sincere gospel love in some ways is like a contagion that is going across churches throughout the United States where there's no word of repentance, there's no word of sin, there's no word of hell. And that's not love. It's not sincere. Sometimes in the past people have said to me, how come all you talk about is sin, sin, sin? To not preach the truth about sin and hell is the most unloving thing a pastor can do. To cover up the hard parts of Scripture, to save face and have a good rapport with the congregation is one of the most unloving things a preacher can do. The Bible comforts at times, and at times the Bible wounds to bring transformation and healing. The Bible in the hand of a preacher is often like a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon. You cut sometimes to bring healing and wholeness as you cut out disease and affliction. See, it's one thing to believe and trust that the Bible is the Word of God. It's another thing to believe and trust the Bible as the Word of God. Think about that. It's one thing to believe and trust the Bible is the Word of God. It's another thing to believe and trust the Bible as the Word of God. These are the very words of God. These are exactly what he wanted to reflect to us. And we have to hold it in that place. Now, that doesn't mean we're jerks about it. You can speak the truth kindly. You can speak the truth compassionately. And you can speak the truth gently, as you should. But you see, we tend to fall into this Either or thinking. Either I'm going to be a loving person or I'm going to be a person who tells the truth. Gospel love doesn't give you either option. That's too easy. It's frankly spiritually immature. Gospel love is you love and you express kindness and graciousness and you tell the truth and without compromise. Paul is saying a church must be a place where there's this kind, loving, humble, gentle rebuke that points all of us towards godliness. And if this is something that's new to you and if somebody's offended you and you don't know, should I talk to them and how do I talk to them, seek counsel about this. The Lord has given us the body of Christ. Wise saints who've gone the path before us that have great wisdom that can help us in these things. 
Tim Keller says, any love that is afraid to confront the beloved is not really love, but a selfish desire to be loved or liked. So if we're supposed to be sincere, what about all those people that we don't really love? Or what about all those people that are really, really hard to love? Do we just act hypocritically and pretend to love them even though inside we really don't? What does gospel love look like then in those cases? Here's how a follower of Jesus would walk out gospel love in those situations. In situations where we have people in front of us that we really don't love or we have people in front of us who are hard to love. First, we are kind and considerate toward that person in all things. That's not being fake. That's just being kind. Second, we humble ourselves and we repent. And we pray in that moment, in fact, God, I know I should love this person, but I don't. Bring God into the reality of your imperfection and sin. God, please forgive me for that and place within my heart a love for them. And we humbly and repentantly walk toward that, albeit imperfectly. And we remember that God loved us while we were enemies of him. And so we say, God, you loved us that much. Help me to love the way you loved towards this person. That's what gospel love looks like. That's real. That's not hypocritical. That's asking for God to work through us. We walk out our imperfection before God constantly and prayerfully, inviting him into the midst of our brokenness so that he can transform us. Gospel love is also demonstrated, as we see in the next section in verses 10 to 13. And in this section, Paul goes on to talk about what does gospel love look like in the real world? And he's so honest and so practical and so real. And he wanted to spell it out clearly so that we would get it. And if I looked at all of these demonstrations in depth, we'd be here all day. So I'm going to invite you to do that at the end, to this week, pour over the whole chapter of Romans 12. And pray it into your heart. And so I'm going to do something a little different than we've done before. And as I go through some of these, I'm going to pause and have us pray. That what we see in God's word would be transposed into our heart. That when you go to this book and interact with God's word, when you live by the book, it should be a conversation. As God speaks to us through his word, we speak to him in prayer, asking for his help to understand and live it out. And I hope to model that as we go through. Look at verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. The first thing we see is that gospel love is deeply devoted. Paul is saying we should love one another as a family loves one another. We often call this the Crossview Church family, and there's a reason for that. Paul is saying that the body of Christ should be a a body that's a family, a strong bond, a strong loving bond. Paul is saying that Christians should be devoted to other Christians, much like family members are devoted to one another. In fact, you could probably make a better case for a stronger connection at times than our families. He longs to have this devotion to one another be seen in the church. So let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we ask that we would be a church that be marked by deep devotion towards the other that we would, 
the bond we'd have with one another in this place, the unity we would experience with one another would be as strong as the perfect family which we don't even see in our regular world. Let your will be done in our lives in this manner, we ask. Look at verse 10, the second part of it. Not only is it say, be devoted to one another in love, but honor one another above ourselves. Gospel love puts others above ourselves. To honor means to treat someone with value and dignity. There is deep theological roots here. Christianity understands that every single human being, regardless of what they believe, regardless if they're a Christian or not, every single human being is made in the image of God, therefore should be treated with dignity and value in a Christian ethic. Infinitely precious and important to God. And as we interact with people... That's the mindset we should have. To honor them means we listen to them. We become aware of their struggles, their hopes, and their dreams. Or if we're just casually walking through life, we're kind to them and courteous to them. We don't demonize or look down on those who disagree with us. And if we're talking about Christians here, we recognize that they are Christians, therefore they contain within them the the Holy Spirit, their temples of the Holy Spirit walking around, and we are aware of that. So let's pray. God, we ask that you change our vision, that when we see human beings, we'd see them as people made in your image. Look at verses 11 and 12. Never, lacking, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. It's easy to think when we look at these verses to think that Paul is talking about how we live out our Christian faith before God, especially when he uses words like not lacking zeal, spiritual fervor, serve the Lord. Like this is, this is how we live out the Christian life. And, and other places say that, that that's how we're supposed to do it. Yes, that's true. But again, the context here is the one another. So what this is saying is that we should use all of our resources as Christians to not give up on one another. To not give up on our brothers and sisters in Christ, but with a strong spiritual zeal, with a spiritual fervor, and with a servant's heart, we are to champion our brothers and sisters in Christ and encourage them to go forward and persevere in Christ until the last day. We're supposed to, in a way, carry our brothers and sisters with our encouragement, our love, and our prayer. We're supposed to have their back When when they blow it and they stumble, we're there to pick them up and help restore them back to the walk towards Christ. That's the picture he has there. It can be painful, draining, and hard. C.S. Lewis says the only way to be sure to never have your heart broken is never give it to anyone. Giving our hearts to our brothers and sisters in church is something we should be marked by. I was talking to a person from our church this week and they made a very profound statement. They say, I live by the words, be patient and kind with everybody. And he said, the reason I do that is because 1 Corinthians, it's the first two things listed. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
I took note of that. Let's pray to that end. Father, we ask that you help us to be patient people. We ask that you help us to long suffer with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to take the long view, not the short view, to take your view. Help us to live that out, we ask. We need your help to do that. Look at verse 13. Gospel love combines feeling and action. Both are necessary. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Love is not void of emotion. It's a great thing. But it's also just very, very practical. Very, very dirty. Very, very tangible. Dirty meaning that it goes to the earth, to the dark places where people are in need. We get involved in those things. True gospel love is not just sentimental, but it meets real needs. Jeremy Stefano writes, being hospitable also means that people are welcomed in our presence as they are. They are welcome without any fear of anxiety or being put down. And he writes, if you are a controlling person and feel the need to power over others or to be the hero in the moment, that is not welcoming and it provides no space for other people. It takes a kind of humility to be hospitable. It's about cultivating a culture of listening and noticing and sincerely loving the other. This week, with God's help, I worked on something that that just plagued me that is sinful and horrible. And I just have this tendency that when someone's talking to me and they'll be sharing and all of a sudden I'll finish what they are saying or trying to say. And oftentimes I'll finish it and it wasn't, what they're trying to say, and then they back up and they say it, but there's this hurriedness in conversation with people that I have that's a sinful thing. I just want to move on to the next thing, and so as they're talking, I say, yeah, yeah, this is what you're saying. No, that's not what I'm saying. That doesn't listen to them. That's not being hospitable to them. That's not honoring them as an image of God let alone a Christian brother and sister. So I've been, with God's help, trying to just really, really listen to people and not form my answer as they're talking, but just really listen. And if there's silence while I form my answer, so be it. It's not easy for me. I need the Lord's help with that. But it's a way we honor one another. Paul goes on and says that gospel love is marked with humility and a trust in God, look at verses 14 to 16. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position and do not be conceited. In this section, you could sum it all up by saying, be humble and trust in the Lord. We can be tempted to live with a fight-to-win mentality or to keep what is mine and revenge those who have wronged us. We all love movies where justice is served, don't we? And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but it's interesting to think about why we like that. And I think it's because we live in worlds where there's injustice. We are confronted with things that are not just, and we experience it daily on either small, tiny levels or great, big, global levels. 
But we experience it in the daily ordinary too, don't we? Our kids choose not to obey. Our boss gives a consequence without knowing the whole picture. Our spouse doesn't respect us. A church member spreads something about us that's not true. Someone steals from us. This is hard and we want payback. It's interesting, the Bible does not deny the realities of living in a real fallen world. We are surrounded by things that are wrong and unjust. However, in those places, followers of Jesus are called to look to God as the ultimate judge and the one who rights all wrongs. We are to live this life before the eyes and face of God. And sometimes our natural response is not the best one. That's why we need to live by the book and ask God to help us. We need to pause and ask for his strength. So how can Paul command us to rejoice and mourn as he does in verse 15? Isn't rejoicing and mourning emotions? How can he command you to have an emotion? How can he command you to have a feeling? That just doesn't seem right. No one can say here, be happy or mourn. How is that a command? He's actually commanding us to do something that's well within our power. Christians in daily living are called to do something that is really, 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 really hard. We're called to pause and seek and understand the world of another. We are called to try to enter a person's world and begin to understand what they are feeling and living and experiencing. And when we do that, we can connect with them on greater levels, especially if we have shared common griefs and losses and hardships and suffering. This is partly what it means to deny ourselves and take up the cross of Jesus Christ which is the call of a disciple. It's very, very difficult to do. In fact, it's impossible to do in our own strength. Verses 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Can you do what is right in the eyes of everyone in your own strength? If it is possible, as far as it is depend on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul concludes by giving us instructions of how to deal with those who've wronged us. And he uses an Old Testament entry here from Proverbs chapter 25. And he says, instead of trying to avenge, again, the natural way, the thing that seems natural to us, that's our knee-jerk reaction, instead of trying to avenge, live by the book. And he pulls out the book, Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will, what? Heap burning coals on his head. What in the world does that mean? That phrase, heap burning coals on his head, is a way of saying, live in a way that creates a desire for a repentance in the one that wronged you. Live in a way that creates this thirst for the good things they see in your life. Create an environment where they would 
want to be quick to fall to their knees and repent. That a hostile person would see you treating them with kindness after they've wronged you and would flip their mindset to think, wow, there's something real here that I don't have. That being the presence of Jesus. This practically means that we do three things as followers of Jesus. First, we have to discern what kind of hostile person this is. The Bible exhorts us to do what is right. The Bible exhorts us to gospel love. However, once again, what we think could be gospel love may not be. That's why we have the book. And certain times, sometimes mostly rare, the godly thing to do in a relationship is to completely cut off the relationship. This Paul, the apostle who wrote what we're looking at in Rome, also wrote this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, not really living it out. And then he says this, have nothing to do with such people. That's gospel love. If we thought about it coming in and we asked for a definition of gospel love, that probably wouldn't make the list. Have nothing to do with such people. So what this is a picture of, the the people he's he's referring to here, there's a picture of arrogant, non-repentant, set on hurting and destroying others for their selfish need. It says we're not to have anything to do with such people. Sometimes gospel love cuts people off in what I call the ministry of absence. And the position we take as Christians there is we pray desperately for that soul. That God would bring them back. That God would create a repentant heart within them. That God would create a humble heart within them. The action we take as gospel people then is to pray. Second, if this person is reasonable, we do not avoid them. As far as it depends on us, live at peace with everyone. Perhaps that means invite them to a conversation. It's impossible to go through life and not get wronged or to wrong others. So the encouragement here is to make peace, to own what you need to own and set yourself free through forgiving that other person. That might be going to someone and having a conversation. Or that might mean just saying, God, I forgive them and I'm just moving forward. I'm not going to make a big deal out of this. Let the Lord guide you in those things. Number three, always express loving words and actions in all things. This is what verses 20 and 21 are teaching us. This means to speak courteously and kindly to those who are hostile to us. Not in a way to rub their nose in it, but in a genuine way. We get to a place where we give our pain to God and we say, God, help us to wish them well, to do helpful things for them, to speak respectfully. There was a time in my life I'm not proud of, and it's going to sound like I did something great, but I didn't. I was a stinker. There was a time where a person wronged me, and I had 
the knowledge of a lie they were spreading. I saw it. I had everything lined up. And I was already loaded for bear to sit down with this person and pull the trigger and just lay it all out. And I had a dear, kind, godly friend who I talked to about this. And he pulled me aside and he said, wait a minute. You have all that stuff. And you're right. You're not wrong. It's all truth. But if you go and do what you're planning on doing, you'll regret it the rest of your days. You'll have a brief moment of satisfaction and then after that, you'll regret it. If you take the high road in this and just give all this to the Lord and pray and ask him to heal your heart, you'll never regret what you've been doing. That was a gift. That was gospel love pushing me towards Christ's likeness in one of my worst moments. I needed that. We need that. That's the church. That's the picture of brothers and sisters in Christ. So how in the world can we do that? Living like this is impossible. If you feel like when you read these things that, you know what, living like that is just totally impossible. Living by the book is completely impossible. If that's how you feel, you are in the exact right spot where you should be. Jesus always taught people to the impossible. He said your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees who were the most religious people on the earth and it blew people's minds. They're like, how can my righteousness surpass the Pharisees? That's impossible. He always taught to the impossible. The Apostle Paul always teaches to the impossible. Where we look at this and we say, that's impossible. Now the wrong thing to do is say, that's impossible, so I'm just not going to live it. The other wrong thing to do is say, no, I'm going to take this on. I'm, it's impossible. I'm going to do it in my own strength. Those are two wrong responses. Jesus took us to the place of impossible. Because he wanted to get us to that place where we fall on our knees and say, God, I can't do this without you. There's no way I can live the Christian life without God. There's no way I can do all these things listed in Romans 12 without the Holy Spirit living inside of me and guiding me and leading me. There's no way. He wanted us to be broken, humble, needy, begging him for his help. That while we live in this place on earth before he comes, we live as spirit-empowered humble, broken life. There's only one way you can live by this. Look at verse 1 of Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of his mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Look at verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To be transformed is a process where we take off the old and we put on the new. That's what we're called to do. It's like refinishing furniture. We scrape off this whole old varnish. We scrape off the patterns of this world. And then we put on the new, which is the truth in the word of God. Paul is saying here to recognize and reject the pattern of thinking, living, and behaving, and feeling like the world does. Instead, embrace God's ways and his life, reorient our hearts towards God and ask him to fill 
and transform us. Being renewed in our minds means we pray and we invite God into our hearts, the good and the bad and the ugly, and we ask him to have his way. It means we bring the truth of scripture, God's way of thinking, into our mind for renewal and to change our thinking. We guard what we take into our minds. And we absorb God's truth. Yes, we read it, but we also reflect on it. We chew on it. We memorize it. We frequent it. We pray it back to God. When we do that, the Holy Spirit washes our minds and our hearts. And he renews us to live in ways so opposite this fallen world. And he re- his renewal brings a supernatural is spirit-empowered holiness that allows us to live according to the book like a way that we could never do in our own strength. It allows us to do what Tim Keller said here. We're the only right rational response to Jesus Christ giving us all of himself is to give all of ourselves to him. This week I encourage all of us to take Romans 12 and read it at least five times this week, maybe Monday through Friday, read it more, but don't just read it. Read it and pray it into your soul. Ask God by the power of his spirit to create these things in your heart. Maybe don't just read it and pray it, but read it, pray it, and memorize it. Maybe don't just read it, pray it, and memorize it. Read it, pray it, memorize it, reflect on it. For the sake of God's glory, let's seek to be gospel people, relying on God and living in a way that exalts Jesus above all things. Let's pray.